0: Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we are joined by Professor Simon Lloyd from Manchester, United Kingdom, and we'll be discussing neurofibromatosis type 2. Professor Lloyd, thanks so much for being here.
1: Oh, thank you very much for the invitation. It's really a pleasure to join you.
0: When you see a patient with neurofibromatosis type 2, uh, how would you say they typically present to your clinic?
1: So it's a condition that can present in many ways, and I guess uh, the important thing is to differentiate it from uh, patients that present with sporadic vestibular schwannomas. In neurofibromatosis type 2, the typical presentation is with uh, a vestibular schwannoma, but over time, the patient often develops bilateral vestibular schwannomas, and that's said to be pathognomonic of NF2. I have to qualify that though. There are patients that present uh, with a single uh, vestibular schwannoma, and if you look at the criteria for, for NF2, actually uh, it's possible to present with NF2 without any vestibular schwannomas. So um, I would say the most common presentation is in the same way as somebody with a sporadic vestibular schwannoma would present with hearing loss or or perhaps imbalance um, in the same way somebody with NF2 might present with those same symptoms. Um, I would qualify that too by saying that the younger patients that present with NF2 often don't present with uh, vestibular schwannoma-type symptoms. They can present with neuropathies, around 30% of patients can develop a peripheral neuropathy. Also, other... Uh, non-vestibular uh, symptoms are common in the younger patients. So, for example, ocular manifestations of NF2 with uh, uh, hamartomas or uh, cataracts is a common way for, for younger patients to present. And similarly, in the younger age group, actually the tumor that most commonly uh, presents is a meningioma uh, within the cerebellopontine angle or within the, uh, uh, the cranial cavity elsewhere rather than the vestibular schwannoma.
0: And when we kind of hear the buzzwords for NF2 on a learning side, we hear bilateral vestibular schwannoma. Do you find that when patients present with vestibular schwannoma, they're presenting with bilateral vestibular schwannoma or is it typically staggered where you see one first and then identify one later? Uh,
1: It very much depends on the individual case. I think uh, a de novo uh, NF2 patient usually would present with unilateral hearing loss or tinnitus or dizziness in the same way as any other vestibular schwannoma patient would, but they uh, would then be found to have a vestibular schwannoma on the opposite side as well when they have their first MRI of the head.
0: And can you speak a little bit to the epidemiology of this disease? How many people are affected by it and what are some risk factors for it?
1: So uh, the prevalence in the UK is about one in 60,000 um, and the birth incidence is about one in 33,000. And what you'll see is that um, the, the, the incidence goes up with increasing age. So um, uh, below the age of five, um, is, it's extremely rare to present, but by the time you reach 45 or 50, almost every patient with NF2 would have presented with symptoms of some sort. So the, the acquisition of a diagnosis of NF2 is usually complete by the time you get to the age of 45 or, or 50. The dif, uh, distribution between male and female is, is pretty similar. Um, and in terms of risk factors, Um, it's a genetic disease, it's a a tumor predisposition syndrome. Um, So um, around um, 50% of the the patients that we see are uh, de novo presentations, um, and then the other half are usually familial um, cases that um, have have had other family members diagnosed with with NF2. It's a really interesting, condition in terms of the underlying uh, genetics um, because uh, around 30% of the patients that present de novo actually have a a type of uh, genetic um, condition called mosaicism whereby uh, the germline mutation doesn't occur in the zygote. It actually happens uh, during early embryonal development. So you end up with two cell populations, you end up with a population that's normal and a population that has the genetic mutation. And that means as the uh, fetus develops and they, they grow into a, 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 an adult, um, they have some of their cells that have the mutation and some that don't. And that means that they can get um, segmental tumor development. So they might get tumors on the left-hand side or the right-hand side, or they might tend to just get tumors um, within the cranial cavity and not in the rest of the spine or the, the rest of the body. Um, and the mosaicism also has an impact on inheritance as well because uh, neurofibromatosis type 2 is generally regarded as an autosomal dominant condition where the inheritance is 50 um, 50. Um, so if you've got full blown NF2, your children will have a 50% chance of developing the same disease. But with mosaicism, because there's only some of the cells in the body that have the genetic abnormality, the chances of passing on the NF2 to your child, if you've got mosaic disease, is lower than it would be if you had full-blown NF2. And then the interesting thing about that is that when the children do inherit the NF2 gene, then the next generation has an autosomal dominant inheritance, so they have a 50-50 chance of developing the the, the disease.
0: And I want to get into pathophysiology a bit more in the genetics, but before we do, say I'm the resident who's about to walk in and um, evaluate a patient with NF2. What am I looking for on physical exam for these patients?
1: So uh, from an ENT perspective, I think the important thing is to uh, ask them what sort of symptoms they've had. Most often it's hearing loss, uh, tinnitus, dizziness. Um, And then with the physical examination, the key is to um, assess the hearing, um, assess their balance function, and then assess the cranial nerves. Um, It's not uncommon, particularly with large tumors, for patients to have neuropathies of the uh, trigeminal nerve, so they might have facial numbness. Uh, They might even, in rarer cases, develop uh, trigeminal neuralgia. And um, they might lose their uh, corneal reflex, which is a fairly early sign of trigeminal nerve involvement. Um, And those are the, the usual signs that go along with vestibular schwannomas. For the larger tumors, and um, those that have got significant brainstem compression, you might also see some nystagmus. Um, typically, in the early phases, you'll get the, uh, the, the, the uh, peripheral uh, types of nystagmus. Um, but with larger tumors, when you've got large brainstem compression, you'll get more central nystagmus as well. And some patients even present with um, Brun's nystagmus, which is a bi-directional type of nystagmus. Um, and then with patients that have other types of tumour, um, if they've got lower cranial nerve tumours, that kind of thing, then they may also present with uh, defects in those cranial nerves, so tongue weakness, uh, swallowing defects. The other uh, area that is quite often affected is the is the orbit. Um, so meningiomas around the optic nerve can also affect vision as well as the other ocular manifestations, so um, uh, visual acuity assessments and that kind of thing play an important role. And then going on to investigations, obviously the key investigation with vestibular schwannomas in particular is to carry out an an audiogram, a pure tone audiogram, and uh, and a a speech assessment.
0: And do you find that there are many skin manifestations for these patients?
1: Uh, So certainly you can see skin manifestations. Um, It's less common in NF2 than it is in NF1, Um, but about 70% of patients with NF2 do have some kind of skin manifestation when you look carefully. So they can get intracutaneous plaques, um, which are often associated with excess hair formation. Uh, They can get fusiform schwannomas of peripheral nerves, so they present as as, um, subcutaneous lumps. Um, and they can also get some café au lait spots, um, but usually significantly less than you see in in, in F one So um, it's only about 1% of patients that get more than six café au lait lesions.
0: And moving on to pathophysiology, you started to talk about the genetics of this disease. Could you tell us more about um, the actual genetic insults uh, that is involved in this uh, disease process?
1: Yeah, so... The um, primary gene abnormality is in the neurofibromatosis type 2 gene. Um, And there are obviously two copies of that gene in the genome. And the patients that have neurofibromatosis type 2 have a mutation of one of those alleles. um, And then they develop a tumor when they have the second hit. And the gene product is uh, a protein called uh, Merlin, and uh, that's a 595 amino acid um, protein um, that is is produced throughout the whole body, but it's particularly um, prevalent within uh, Schwann cells, which is why um, Schwann cells are, have a, a predisposition to developing tumors. Um, uh, and I, g- I guess this is a good time to mention other kind of uh, syndromes that that you, that that. that look like NF2, but aren't NF2. Um, and there are two other genes that can actually mimic um, NF2, and that's the LZTR1 mutation and the b one mutation. And, and those two conditions can uh, look like NF2, but are very slightly different. So they, they don't usually present with um, vestibular schwannomas, um, they often present with schwannomas elsewhere, um, and they can also develop meningiomas in the same way as you can with with NF2. Um, so when we genetically screen patients, we always look for, for those two genetic abnormalities as well. And the fact that we now know that it's, it's a, 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 there's a number of different syndromes that can look like NF2 has actually made us reevaluate the way that we um, classify NF2. And we've been looking at uh, different ways of, of doing that. And it, it may well be that going forward over the next few years that we'll we'll try and change the nomencl- nomenclature. Um, we may change it to, a, a say, for example, a schwannoma predisposition syndrome linked with a particular gene. So NF2 might become schwannoma predisposition syndrome, Merlin, and LZTR1 mutations might become schwannoma predisposition syndrome, LZTR1, for example.
0: And can you tell us which chromosome this is located on, and are the other uh, predisposing uh, genetic insults on the same chromosome?
1: Yeah, so, yeah, all of those three types of mutation are on um, chromosome 22, and uh, the mutation for Merlin is on the long arm of chromosome 22.
0: And... When we talk about the different types of presentations of this disease, um, are there different characterizations or manifestations uh, depending on the type of mutation and how a patient might present with this?
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Historically, we've divided NF2 into two main groups depending on the severity of the disease. There's the so-called Wishart type um, and the Gardner type. And they're really phenotypic descriptions. The Wishart type is named after the uh, surgeon uh, that, that uh, first described NF2. He was the president of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh at the time. Um, and um, in those uh, patients, they get very much more aggressive disease in the Gardner type. In recent years, we've kind of moved away from the uh, phenotypic descriptions, and we, we now look more at the genotypes. Um, and there's a very clear Link between the type of gene mutation that we see and the severity of the disease. So, for example, um, the types of mutation you might see include truncating muse- mutations, splice site mutations, deletions, uh, missense mutations. Um, and the uh, truncating mutations, which um, result in a, a protein product that's quite considerably abnormal tend to result in a more severe disease whereas the missense mutations which is re- usually just a, a single point mutation you tend to get a more normal protein product and that usually results in less severe disease and there's a really clear link between those those genotypes and phenotypes so for example um, if you've got a, uh, a truncating mutation you tend to have um, uh, past growing tumors you tend to get more um, meningiomas you might develop more spinal tumors meningiomas or ependymomas for example um, and there's a link between genotype and mortality as well so if you've got a missense mutation then your overall survival is
0: significantly
1: better for example than if you look at those that have got truncating mutations or large deletions
0: and um what is the natural history of this disease? What happens if this disease goes untreated?
1: So again, it very much depends on the um, genotype and the associated phenotype. Um, if you've got mosaic disease, uh, there are many patients that develop uh, bilateral vestibular schwannomas, some of which don't grow. And many of those patients we were able to manage conservatively um, without needing to intervene in any way. Um, But if you take a typical patient with full-blown neurofibromatosis type 2, what tends to happen is their vestibular schwannomas grow over time. They tend to develop deafness as a result of that, which in NF2 and bilateral vestibular schwannomas can obviously be bilateral. And it's actually the hearing loss uh, that can cause uh, the greatest change in their quality of life in the largest proportion of patients, which is very different from the sporadic vestibular schwannomas because those patients have good hearing in one ear, so the hearing loss doesn't really have much impact. Um, and then over time, uh, they can develop other symptoms because of the growing vestibular schwannomas, so they might start to get um, balance disturbance and symptoms of brainstem compression, compression. If you look historically at patients with NF2, it was really uh, the very significant brainstem compression that can develop in these patients that, that end up resulting in the patient's death in the long run through respiratory depression and typical features of of brainstem compression that result from vestibular schwannomas. Um, so that's the vestibular schwannoma side of things, but it's not just um, a vestibular schwannoma condition. So. Um, It's not uncommon for patients with NF2 to develop spinal problems. Um, It's actually fairly unusual for us to end up needing to intervene with spinal tumors, um, but it's certainly not unheard of. And um, if you leave tumors within the spine unchecked, then there's um, the possibility of developing um, peripheral um, neurological deficits because of that. And similarly, uh, you can develop vestibular. Schw- uh, sorry, you can develop schwannomas on other peripheral nerves, so p- uh, brachial plexus and other peripheral nerves that can also result in neurological deficits. And then you've got the um, other manifestations, the ocular manifestations. So um, it's it's um, common for people to develop um, cataracts in the long run. They're not always clinically manifesting, but um, if you look in in everybody's eyes, around 80% of patients will have um, some form of cataract formation um, with full-blown NF2. And then you can get poor visual acuity because of the effects of um, meningiomas affecting the optic nerve and also from ocular hamartomas as well. Um, so those are the, the predominant um, symptoms that can develop if you leave NF2 unchecked.
0: And moving on to differential diagnosis, um, I wanted to talk about what else is on your differential and most specifically talk about NF1. Could you spend some time maybe contrasting NF2 to NF1 and maybe explain um, why NF2 is called what it's called?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of confusion between uh, NF1 and NF2 Um, and I think for many years, um, the diagnostic criteria were not particularly clear, um, but I think now we have a much better understanding of the genetics of the two conditions, and um, the two have become very clear, clearly differentiated um, syndromes. So, uh, with NF1, uh, vestibular schwannomas are not a feature, and I think that's one of the key things to to be aware of. Um, with uh, NF1, you tend to get more skin manifestations, so you get more cafe au lait spots, um, and the cafe au lait spots that you get are usually larger. Um, the histopathology of the tumors is, is also different. So in NF2, uh, you don't tend to get neurofibromas. Um, so really, NF2 is a misnomer, um, whereas in NF1, um, It's common to get two or more neurofibromas and you can get plexiform um, neurofibromas as well, which can affect any part of the body. Um, And you also get these typical uh, leash nodules uh, within the eye in in NF1, which you don't get in in NF2. Um, And obviously, uh, there'll be a family history in many patients um, of NF1 um, in patients that present with NF1, whereas that's not the case. Yeah,
0: um, in NF2. And it seems like uh, NF2 is kind of its own specific diagnosis, but is there anything else you keep on the differential diagnosis in considering this disease presentation?
1: Um, I guess just the other um, tumor predisposition syndromes, the LZTR1 and the SMART B1 um, type conditions. Um, like I, I think it's probably a good time just to say that actually, not Everybody with a bilateral vestibular schwannoma has NF2. Um, If you look at the proportion of patients with bilateral vestibular schwannomas, if you present very young, then almost certainly you will have NF2. But if you present over the age of 70 with bilateral vestibular schwannomas, then there's probably only a 50% chance that that individual has NF2. And the two tumours are probably actually just two sporadic uh, vestibular schwannomas.
0: I next wanted to move on to the workup. You mentioned uh, audiologic testing, but when you uh, see a patient who you suspect has NF2, uh, what is your full workup for these patients?
1: So they get a full uh, ENT and neurological examination, which we've talked about already. Um, And then in terms of investigations, uh, the uh, audiological assessment consists of a pure tone audiogram and speech uh discrimination testing. Um, and we use um, word scores, uh, the Arthur Boothroyd sc- word scores um, when we're carrying out the assessment. Um, and, and that's important to do both because um, p- people with vestibular schwannomas, not just in NF2, but sporadic, tend to get um, some distortion of the sound. So the pure tone audiogram sometimes doesn't give a a really good representation of their actual functional hearing, whereas the word scores tend to give you a much better functional assessment of of the hearing. I guess after the uh, pure tone audiogram and the speech assessment, um, the next line of investigation is imaging. And the mainstay of of imaging is magnetic resonance imaging. And um, we have very specific, protocols for ensuring that we get the best pictures um, in terms of imaging both the head and the spine. Um, And we uh, will carry out contrast-enhanced imaging with gadolinium, um, both axial and um, uh, coronal cuts. And we'll um, carry out T1 and T2 sequences. With um, high-resolution, fine-cut imaging through the through the head and spine, uh, and that gives us the best possible uh, modality for uh, for identifying uh, tumors. Um, we also uh, image uh, the chest and the abdomen, um, which often is covered by the the spinal scan. Um, if there are other specific um, tumors that that are that are giving signs or symptoms.
0: And so say you get the MRI and you identify the uh, bilateral vestibular schwannoma, what does that lead you on to for additional testing?
1: So obviously the other manifestations of, of uh, NF2 are very important, and uh, the uh, care of patients with NF2 is multidisciplinary, and one of the key things to, uh, to do is assess the eye, um, so we always involve our ophthalmology colleagues, and they can assess the, the patient for uh, the, the ocular hamartomas and the cataracts and any visual acuity abnormalities. And then the other element of assessment uh, presentation is the genetic assessment. And um, the genetics team plays a key role in the management of any patient with an F2. What we tend to do initially is to carry out uh, genetic testing in blood, and um, if you've got full-blown NF2, then there's a, a 95% chance that we'll be able to identify the gene abnormality within blood. But patients that have mosaicism can not sometimes be a real challenge to diagnose the genetic abnormality because blood doesn't carry the mutation in quite a significant proportion of patients. Um, that have mosaicism. So in those patients, if we need to know what the genetic abnormality is, we'll try and biopsy a a tumour or ideally two tumours so that we can make sure that we've got the same uh, genetic mutation identified in two separate tumours. And that doesn't have to be vestibular schwannomas. If you've got peripheral tumours, then biopsying those tumours sometimes can be quite helpful. We don't do that routinely for for every patient. because, you know, sometimes biopsying these tumors can lead to um, consequences that, that we, we would rather avoid, um, but it's certainly something that we, we do do from time to time.
0: And with all of this information together, how do you make the official diagnosis of NF2? Is there a diagnostic criteria that you follow, or is it only genetic
1: No, so um, the genetics is important, but there are um, diagnostic criteria that are are widely used. Um, The most commonly used is the revised Manchester NF2 criteria, and that basically has five different arms. One is um, the presence of bilateral vestibular schwannomas, um, and then the second is a family history of NF2 and a unilateral vestibular schwannoma. The third criteria is a family history of NF2 uh, or a unilateral vestibular schwannoma or uh, one of two types of other uh, manifestations, so meningioma, cataract, glioma, neurofibroma, schwannoma or cerebral calcification. And then the other criteria are multiple meningiomas uh, and two of those conditions that I've just mentioned or... Finally, um, an actual mutation that's identified in blood um, or in two uh, distinct tumours that have been biopsied. But you'll probably know from that description that actually our idea of the pathology that's present in NF2 has changed. So I mentioned that gliomas and neurofibomas fall into that revised Manchester NF2 criteria. Whereas in actual fact, gliomas and neurofibromas aren't actually um, a feature of NF2. Um, and we've only really become aware of that over the last sort of 20 years since the revised Manchester criteria were, were developed. So the gliomas um, are now, generally speaking, uh, found to be appendomomas. And the neurofibroma pathology isn't really something that we see in NF2. So I think what we'll see in the next few years is a change of the classification system that we use for diagnosing NF2.
0: And when we move on to treatment, uh, we do have another podcast episode specifically about vestibular schwannoma. And in that episode, we talk about observation, stereotactic radiosurgery, and microsurgical removal. And we kind of outline the different uh, indications uh, for, e- for each of these. Um, I imagine NF2 poses a more difficult challenge. How do you approach the treatment of NF2 uh, and what are your treatment options?
1: So I guess fundamentally, in terms of vestibular schwannoma, the treatment options are very similar to those uh, for sporadic tumors. Um, There is, however, one other treatment option that has become available over the last 10 years, probably now, um, and that's medical therapies. So forms of chemotherapy And in particular, the use of a drug called bevacizumab um, or Avastin, which is its trade name. And that really has revolutionized the way we manage many of our patients with with NF2. Um, But I'll go back to that um, later on. Um, So if we go back to the tumors um, when they first present, uh, it's certainly very common for us to manage tumors conservatively. Um, and I think historically, we've tended to manage tumours much more conservatively in NF2 than we have in sporadic disease, because uh, we know that they've got bilateral tumours. And if you treat both tumours, then you can end up causing quite significant disability to the to the patients through um, your own interventions. Uh, so... If you go back 30 years, we would have been watching vestibular schwannomas until they get really very large um, in order to preserve their hearing and to preserve them functionally. And then we would end up being faced with having to remove a four centimeter tumor with the um, potential greater risk of undertaking that type of tumor. Now I think we have a much more um, proactive approach to uh, taking out Vestibular schwannomas, or treating vestibular schwannomas with radiotherapy or with medical therapies, will will tend to um, uh, get involved much earlier on um, because we know that removing a tumour when it's smaller is associated with much lower morbidity, and there are much more effective uh, rehabilitation modalities now that we can use. So, for example. With a vestibular schwannoma, if we take it out, we can place an auditory brainstem implant to rehabilitate the hearing. In some cases, uh, we're able to take a tumor out and use a cochlear implant, and we're certainly able to use cochlear implants in patients that have got conservatively managed tumors or tumors that have had radiotherapy or or a Vastin treatment. So now we 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 tend to deal with one vestibular schwannoma relatively early on, and then uh, we're we're able to um, rehabilitate the patient, and then we can deal with the second vestibular schwannoma um, if we need to at some point in the future, knowing that we've we've given some degree of rehabilitation already for the other ear.
0: And what's the role for radiosurgery here?
1: So there certainly is a role for radiosurgery in in NF two. Um, but the uh, condition is a tumour predisposition syndrome and um, there is a a germline mutation uh, throughout the body um, that makes it much more likely that somebody that gets it, uh, that somebody will develop a tumour. So when you use radiotherapy, you're much more likely to cause that second hit and induce a new tumour. And that means that uh, we we tend to use radiotherapy in a more limited number of cases, um, uh, and certainly we're re- reluctant in the younger cohort to, to use radiotherapy. Um, we tend to use um, stereotactic radiosurgery, and um, certainly in our department uh, we use Gamma Knife, and the, there are other centres around the world that use other forms of stereotactic radiosurgery. And, If you look at the literature, the success rates of radiosurgery in NF2 are not as great as they are in sporadic vestibular schwannoma, so with a sporadic vestibular schwannoma we'd expect somebody to get a 95% control rate with uh, stereotactic radiosurgery, but for neurofibromatosis type 2 patients, the the control rate's probably more like 50% over a 5 or 10 year period.
0: And you started to talk about bevacizumab. Could you tell us a little bit more about how that's used and how effective it is?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, bevacizumab is a a VEGF receptor antibody, so vascular endothelial growth factor antibody. And what that does is it binds to the VEGF receptor. And because VEGF is one of the uh, cytokines that... um, results in angiogenesis within tumors having the uh, VEGF antibody bound to the receptor reduces the angiogenic uh, tendencies of the tumor and there's very good evidence now certainly in uh, NF2 that uh, by blocking that VEGF receptor you can significantly slow down the rate of growth of of vestibular schwannomas we've also seen Uh, similar results with other forms of schwannoma around the body, so particularly spinal schwannomas. We've had some really fantastic results with reversal of neurological deficits um, with um, treatment of, of peripheral schwannomas with bevacizumab. And in vestibular schwannomas, bevacizumab has also been shown to slow down the loss of hearing and in some cases even improve the hearing in some cases.
0: So in the specific case of NF2, is bevacizumab always used, or are there certain indications for it?
1: No, there are certain indications for it. It's a drug that um, up until recently has been very expensive. So certainly in the UK, uh, its use has been rationalized to some degree, um, and currently we have quite strict criteria. So the tumor has to be growing at least four millimeters per annum, um, and the um, there has to be some kind of threat to function so in the case of a vestibular schwannoma that would be hearing um, those criteria will be very different from one country to another and certainly in the UK with Avastin now coming off license the cost of the drug has come down and we may well relax our criteria for the use of bevacizumab. Um, we currently use a uh, around five milligrams per kilogram for nightly uh, for, for bevacizumab. And it's a parenteral treatment, so it's an injection. So it's it's not easy to to deliver the treatment, which is another reason why uh, we don't use it um, for every patient with a growing vestibular schwannoma. Um, and you can reduce the, the dose that you give over time to try and reduce side effects of the drug. And most patients tolerate it really, really well. Um, There are some problems with it in terms of nephrotoxicity, Um, there are some problems with affecting um, patients' uh, fertility, and it can affect um, blood clotting, so in some cases it can uh, make you more uh, pro-thrombotic, and in some cases it can make you uh, more prone to bleeding. Um, So it's not a drug without problems, but um, most of the time patients tolerate it very well.
0: And I understand that um, when we talk about outcomes and expectations, uh, there are other types of tumors that are being um, resected by maybe our neurosurgical partners. Um, But how do you counsel patients on uh, both expectations for surgery uh, and also outcomes regarding their vestibular schwannomas?
1: So I guess the patient's uh pretty up to speed with the options for treatment from the outset. We're very clear uh, with them at the beginning that we are able to manage the patient's tumours conservatively in many cases, but in the long run, it's likely that they will come to some kind of treatment. Um, And we go into some detail explaining what uh, what the potential benefits and risks of each of those treatment options are. Uh, over time. Um, but with surgery, um, we obviously explain that there's a, a significant risk of damaging the facial nerve, very much dependent on the uh, size of the tumour when we're operating. So, smaller tumours have a much lower uh, risk of damaging the facial nerve than, than larger tumours. Um, we counsel them with regards to the potential for recurrence, which is more common in NF2 than it would be in a sporadic tumor. And we counsel them with regards to the other complications that can develop with vestibular schwannoma surgery, such as uh, CSF leak, uh, stroke, intracranial hemorrhage, meningitis, damage to the other cranial nerves in the area, and and the risk of of dying as a result of the surgery.
0: And what's your approach in terms of uh, gross total resection versus subtotal resection?
1: That varies a lot between units. Uh, Our own personal philosophy is that we try and remove all the tumour in every case if we can, but if there looks like there's going to be significant damage to the facial nerve, it's not that unusual for us to leave a very small amount of tumour on the facial nerve. And that little bit of residual tumour is devascularised and it's pretty unusual for it to, to regrow, although there is a greater risk of regrowth in NF2 than there is in sporadic tumors Uh, but often in nf2 we're not just dealing with an isolated uh, vestibular schwannoma Uh, you can often get uh, facial schwannomas in association with the vestibular schwannoma you can get lower cranial nerve schwannomas associated with it so you you might be dealing with a conglomerate of tumors and, and in that situation we try and take out the vestibular schwannoma Leave any other any other non vestibular tumours in place so that we don't give them too many cranial nerve deficits following following the surgery.
0: And how do you follow up with these patients?
1: So they get followed up in outpatients around six weeks operatively and we see them again at three months. Um, if they have facial weakness, um, we'll be able to counsel them about whether it's likely to recover, depending on whether the nerve was functioning well um, interoperatively and we can also get an idea of whether it's going to recover um, from whether or not they've still got a little bit of residual function if they if they do have facial weakness at all Um, and then the follow-up after that really is with the same imaging modalities that we've already discussed with uh, uh, cross-sectional mri imaging of the head
0: Well, Professor Lloyd, thank you so much for this uh, discussion. I was gonna move on to our summary next, but uh, is there anything else you wanted to add before we close our time together?
1: I think one of the things we touched on briefly is uh, hearing rehabilitation in NF2. And as I mentioned earlier on, the uh, thing that affects the quality of life of patients with NF2 the most is bilateral uh, hearing loss. And over the last 20 or 30 years, we've been fortunate to be able to develop um, a number of different modalities for hearing rehabilitation in NF2. Um, for, the, for the last um, 10 years, we've been using cochlear implantation in various different groups of patients in, in NF2. Um, so we can use it in patients that have got conservatively managed tumors. Um, we can use it in patients that have had stereotactic radiosurgery and, We can sometimes use it in patients that have had cochlear nerve-preserving surgery. And those patients that have had cochlear implants can do very well. Not everybody does. Um, I have to say those patients that have conservatively managed tumours tend to do better than those that have had uh, other types of treatment to their tumour. But um, we can expect patients with um, conservatively managed tumors tumors to achieve up to 60% um, in their uh, sentence scores with their cochlear implant. Those that have had surgery or radiotherapy, they tend to score on average around sort of 35 or, or, or 40%. And so they don't do quite so well with their cochlear implants. And for those patients that have had their vestibular schwannomas removed and their cochlear nerve isn't intact, um, the use of auditory brainstem implantation has has been extremely important for these patients. And although auditory brainstem implantation doesn't offer the same degree of hearing rehabilitation that a cochlear implant might, they certainly allow patients to be able to appreciate environmental sounds, and they act as an aid for lip reading um, so that patients can function much uh, much more easily on a day-to-day basis. One more thing I'd like to add is that uh, the management of NF2 is very much multidisciplinary and uh, certainly our team here in Manchester and many of the larger teams across the world consist of ENT, neurosurgery, uh, audiology, uh, oncology, genetics, uh, pediatrics, and uh, radiology. And um, without that team approach, I don't think the outcomes of uh, management of NF2 and be optimized.
0: Well, Professor Lloyd, thank you so much. Um, I'll now move into our summary. Uh, NF2 is a genetic disease that includes a clinical presentation of bi- bilateral vestibular schwannoma or vestibular schwannoma with other tumors such as a meningioma. The pathophysiology is related to a genetic insult to chromosome 22 related to the Merlin gene, although 50% of patients are de novo mutations and do not have a family history. Workup is extensive to include MRI, audiologic evaluation, ophthalmology evaluation, and genetic consultation, and a patient is diagnosed once they meet specific NF2 diagnostic criteria. Treatment requires a multidisciplinary approach considering quality of life, location of tumors, and hearing status, and treatment often includes surgical resection as well as uh, medical therapy such as bevacizumab and sometimes radiation therapy. Outcomes are dependent on the extent of disease uh, and there are options for uh, hearing rehabilitation uh, such as cochlear implantation and auditory brainstem implantation. Professor Lloyd, anything else you'd like to add?
1: Yeah, sounds great.
0: Wonderful. I'll now move into the question asking portion of our time together. As a reminder, I'll ask a question, pause for a few seconds and then uh, give the answer. So the first question is, what is the most common genetic mutation we find in patients with NF2 and how many patients present with new mutations? Uh, The most common alteration is at chromosome 22 affecting the Merlin gene. This is an autosomal dominant inheritance pattern, but about 50% of patients present with a new mutation and no family history. The next question is, What are the diagnostic criteria for NF2? There's a list of diagnostic criteria for NF2, and it's as follows. A patient could, one, have bilateral vestibular schwannoma, two, have a first-degree relative with NF2 and a unilateral vestibular schwannoma, or any of the two following, meningioma, schwannoma, glioma, neurofibroma, or cataract. They could also have a unilateral vestibular schwannoma and any two of the following. Again, the meningioma, schwannoma, glioma, neurofibroma, and cataract. They could have multiple meningiomas and unilateral vestibular schwannoma or any of those other tumors. And finally, this can be genetically diagnosed. And as Professor Lloyd said, this can be from a blood sample or from two separately biopsied tumors. And for our last question, what are the treatment options Uh, in patients with NF2. There's a broad answer to this question, and it's dependent on patient presentation. But in terms of vestibular schwannoma, tumors can be observed. They can undergo microsurgical resection. There is a role for stereotactic radiosurgery. And there's also more convincing evidence that bevacizumab can be helpful in the management of these tumors. And finally, hearing restoration is always a consideration with either cochlear implantation or ABI. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.